Hi, this is Rob Metris, and welcome to another season of the Too Big Telecom Guys. Well, today we're going to have a new format, and we're going to have a discussion. So let's join Jeff now as we talk about this year's and last year's irrelevancy and new ideas. You know, if we take a look at extreme low energy servers, so this is the whole thing about uh, going green. Going this, green. This is the big piece for this is that extreme low energy servers are going to so lower energy, lower heat, and therefore lower green has a, has a, has a greening impact so that your data centers, the cost of operating a data center goes drops down. exponentially. Yeah. So instead of a, instead of the old raised floor and multiple air conditioning units uh, conditioning. Yeah, and it's like you're you know you probably look at in factors of right. So that, you know, let's take, you know, let's let's go back 30 years ago, and that <laughs> Western, main, Western CDC yeah. took a CDC 20, took up almost the whole floor of a building. Yeah, there's more computing power now in a MacBook Pro than there is, than there was in that. Yeah. In that center. You know, it's like you take a look. It's like. In the steel mill, right? The steel mill operations was operated by a Honeywell uh, GPAC uh, 4, right? So it was a 12-bit computer, and it had, uh, you know, so there was a uh, tape card readers, and it had... A uh, whole bunch of NASDs. The disk, the disk was, um, you know, was... Uh, you had a fiber disc pack. Yeah. You would put the disc in, you know, and you had to press the button and let it spin down, and the vacuum would have to come off, and then you could change the disc pack. Yeah. And that you put a new disc pack in, you put it in, and you spun it up. And I don't even know what the capacity. I don't even think it had a a meg capacity on that. Yeah. Really. And it, when I think of disc packs, I the when I was chairman of the hydro utility in London, we we did. We were service bureau at a whole bunch of other hydros, and we had an IBM 3060, uh, or 360, I think at the time, and it, like, whole room, bunch of bunch of DASDs sitting all there. It, it, I used to say it looked like a laundromat. Every one of these things looked like a washing machine, you know. With yeah, the, yeah. And and that was a disk drive. And it, it and the, that was just the disk drive. Yeah. In business school at Western, we had a PDP 10. Right. A deck box. Yep. And you had to feed it. You had to go when you're a student, you had to code your cards and feed it to do something as simple as a Fortran program that added twelve sets of numbers and then performed an average on it and then you know, did random number generators, did a few other things. But that would have taken you a hundred punch cards. Yeah. Because each punch card was only one in one set of instructions. Yeah. That was a line of code. You yeah. know, because it's actually, you know... It was COBOL. Actually, it, was, it wasn't was COBOL. And Fortran. Fortran. Uh, You're probably running Fortran... Watt 4. Yeah, Watt 4, right? Because yeah. it's, you know, in 1988, when I started in process control engineering, that was the Honeywell GPAC, you know, a 12-bit computer. It had rotating core memory. This is core memory predates CMOS, and what core memory was is it had an iron ferrite circle 
right? It's a little 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 circle like a, a donut. Yeah. And it was made out of iron ferrite, and then they wrapped the core with uh, you know, like a varnish finished copper wire. Yeah. And then there was a, a, a capacitor. So this this core was storage. And so depending on the voltages and that that was applied to it, that would change your your memory. So the core, and it was in a rotating drum, so that the memory would spin. So it was a rotating core memory. And so that the way that you accessed your, it was a random access memory, was about how the, the memory changed. Now you can think about machines that have 4K of memory. So 4K is 4,000 bytes. That's 4,096 bytes. So that would be 4,096 iron ferrite cores, which represent the bits. Right, so and you can imagine these these iron ferrite cores were approximately like an inch big, and ENIAC, the first one, right, was tubes. Yeah, exactly. You know, so this, you know, the General Electric, the GPAC, right, the General yeah. Electric Process Automation Computer, right. This is late 1960s vintage technology, right, running Fortran four, and PAL process assembly language, right. Yeah. So the cool thing was, yeah, there was streaming tape to feed this thing, but there was also um, the punch cards like you had, and we would send the punch cards across uh, to be, uh, you would, we would actually, what we would do is we would code it up. We would, we had a, a terminal, right? We had a microvax. So we would write our program. And then it would. We would then upload the program to the, uh, the IBM system and they would dump the cards out. Then we would bring the cards back and run them through a card reader, and the card reader would actually type the code out on the top of the cards. Yeah. So the, all that the, when we uploaded our program to the, um, to the mainframe, the mainframe would punch the cards. That's all it did. We'd get back a, a box of cards. You know, so if we had a 2,000 line program, it would be 2,000 lines. Now, do you know what we did to protect those cards from getting out of sequence if you ever dropped them? Oh, yeah. So you would take a box of cards, basically the size of a, a box of paper, and you would take a marker from one corner to the opposite corner diagonally yeah. and a ruler, and you would put one red mark with those big markers, yeah. and the other way you would put a black mark. So if you dropped your box of cards... All you had to do was... You could look at and align the colors put them back in sequence. Until you had the cards interpreted, you wouldn't know the code line number. So you would run these cards through this card reader and it would punch out, you'd drop them in there and it would sit there in a little typewriter, dot matrix printer, and it would print on top of the cards. So, you know, that was... Well, you know, it's funny. I think of my dad, when I was a kid, he had a super test account, super test gas credit card. And what it was, was... It was sort of a book with a bunch of punch cards attached to like a check stub. Yeah. And you pulled it out, and all his account information was already encoded in the card. Right. And they just type key punched the dollar value of the gas to produce it. So their accounting program was no more than a <laughs> a dump of the card. Yeah. And so it dumped it uh, to a 
a statement and you paid it. Yeah. And the, the, when you paid it, it used another punch card to say, we got it. And that's how they did their, that's how they did their ledgers. And, and that, that was, in those days, Superdust was a big company in Luna. Right. A big company before they sold out to BP. Right. That's my earliest recollection of punch card. You know, and when you, and then when we went to Bisco, we had to do projects on, in Fortran. And we had to plug the stuff in. And the PDP-10. And that, that deck box, the PDP-10 in the business school, was one of the high-end pieces of technology. And it costs a lot of money. Yeah. You know, let's, let's, let's take a look at both. You know, look at those companies. Digital Equipment Corporation. Gone. Wang Computer Corporation. Gone. NCR. Gone. Um, there's another guy that was in the... It was a it was a mini Uniac uh, uh, uni, uh, Unisys Unisys right so you got all these people that really made a huge name for them in the mini the mini computer main mainframe mini computer data general data general right so there's the, these were not not only were these household names but these were the staples of the industry at that time you know and who's who's there today right. You take a look, you know, the only thing that's left of uh, Digital Equipment Corporation is uh, HP bought, acquired Compaq, and Compaq acquired Digital Equipment Corporation, right? And what happened? Compaq acquired actually uh, Digital Equipment Corporation. They also acquired Tandem. 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 Now there's the mainframe guys. Tandem, we, we, our whole system at Shared Health yeah. was based on a tandem COBOL, tackle, mm-hmm. ta- what we call the tackle prompt. And it was written until, until 2001, we were still processing drug claims and credit card transactions on the tandem using tackle prompt COBOL yep. before we went into Unix on a sunbox, which was like... <laughs> light speed ahead. And now, when I think about that, the Unix on the Sunbox that we had, I have more power (laughs) in a Linux laptop. You got more power in your iPhone, let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to, right? You got an iPhone with 64 gig of memory. It's got a dual core processor in it, right? Um, The things that we take for granted in, in our smartphones now, right? Um, so the whole thing is that you, let's take a look at what technology was once the greatest piece of technology out there that was the, the multi-million dollar company that if you went and asked to the people today in business, they wouldn't even recognize the names, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Digital Equipment Corporation. No. Gone, right? Tandem Computer. Gone. gone. You know, so NCR... Uh, and oh, data way. general, data, data general. general. And the most interesting thing is, is the geography of the um, intelligence of most of that stuff. That stuff all came from Highway 101 north of Boston. Yeah. All MIT grads, all Eastern grads. Yeah. If we look at our technology today, it all doesn't come from Boston anymore. It comes from, it went from MIT to Stanford. Yeah, exactly. And, and Stanford, 
was the home of the, the Park Laboratory, which was the Xerox's uh, think tank, etc. And they came out with stuff 25 years ago that they, somebody said, no, you can't do that, that are now the basis of some of the computing technology. When you think about that, uh, the, the industrial East is disappearing to the technology West. Yeah, and, and the technology West is now wondering if it still has power with the technology Far East. Exactly. And when I look at the, the competing, uh, or Texas Instruments in Dallas, EDS in Dallas, yeah. all of these large process companies that did everybody else's work for them, mm-hmm. where are they? EDS was bought by GM. Yep. GM got rid of it. EDS is still there, but it's all it is is a conglomeration of 14 or 15 systems integrators mm-hmm. because the new systems don't require the amount of labor. So you take a company like uh, Accenture or Arthur Anderson, Anderson Consulting. Yep. Uh, a lot of those big names aren't here anymore because the technology has simplified itself to the fact where you can almost have that in-house yeah. with, with using standard programs that you, didn't, you wouldn't have had in the 60s, 70s, or 80s. Yeah, you know, it's like what we're talking about is we're talking about irrelevancy. You know, it's like something that is, you know, in the past was the most relevant, the most important decade later or decades later that have been completely become irrelevant. Let's talk about something, you know, you've heard in the news recently about Kodak gone bankrupt. You know, who would have thought Mama Don't Take My Kodachrome Away would be where it is today, right? And and the reason Kodak went bankrupt isn't because they didn't have great product. And they didn't have great profit. They didn't have great profit, but all of their product relied on one technology, and that was a chemical... Uh, film uh, treatment. Yeah. And Kodak was one of the originators of the digital camera, but couldn't get it right. The Japanese got it right, and then as they as they expanded into uh, photographic technology, you ended up starting to see uh, cheap, cheap photos coming out of phones that could have given the good quality. And then the um, pixel size in those days was a lot different. Well, now that pixel, uh, the amount of pixels that they uh, can do with a picture is remarkable. Uh, There's a photographer in California, um, a woman named Lisa Bettany from Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And uh, she uh, is the the girlfriend of... uh, fellow that runs Mashable, Pete Cashmore, that wasn't, or that, that business wasn't around. Lisa's claim to fame is she wrote it with some developers, a photography app for the iPhone called the Camera Plus right. that gave most of the elements that you would get with a very good digital camera by software onto the Apple. 
right. which is sold at two ninety nine or something on the iPhone store, the iTunes store, over two and a half million copies. Yep. Now, <laughs> when we were youngsters, we didn't know what the word app was. No. Uh, by the time well, we thought it was short form for appliance. Yeah, when we were something that mum bought. By the time we were teenagers, we sort of knew that it was something that helped us do something, okay. uh, an appliance. And then the application software started to come around. Visical, as like as Lotus One Two Three, Mitch Kapoor in Boston. It, this this amazes me. It, it goes back to this Boston to the Silicon Valley. Mitch Kapoor invented it in Boston, yeah. and then the next piece of software that came out, which was major, came out of Redmond, Washington, and that was Lotus. That was one, two, three, or Excel. Yeah. And then you began the uh, continuous iterations, and you had some people that were reacting to the marketplace, and some people that were making the marketplace. And to me, the most interesting thing of, of looking at that, and where we can see a trend coming is the people that were looking for perfection probably didn't get there. No. But the common complaint against Microsoft when they ship is it's still full of bugs. Yep. And most, uh, micro, most Windows products have a continuous iteration cycle to improve the security and to improve uh, on the functioning of the device. Now, not to just pick on Microsoft, most of the software developers do now, and because of the ease of convenience of updating yeah. with you know with your iPhone or your iPad or uh, you uh, know you take that, that's that's a like we look at the uh, evolution of the operating systems, right? Take a look at um, Apple, take a look at Microsoft, and uh, you know, again, there's there was partners that were in that space that have become irrelevant again. You know, like think about the first portable computer you had. What was it? The the first portable computer I had was an Apple 64K yeah. that cost me sixty two hundred dollars with a Centronic 739, yeah. and that was in the 70s. Yeah, and what about the uh, Data General had a had a fantastic portable, portable computer that had a had a six inch green screen in it. And I, I remember that one, but I also remember my Osborne. The Osborne, that's the, the that's trash, one I was thinking. The about. one that came from Trash Eighty. Yeah. Uh, and then you had your your Atari, yeah. your Commodore, and your Sinclair, yeah. etc. And it's those good. Those, to me, uh, children would see those in museums today yeah. when this is only 35 years ago. Yeah. You know, you think about, let's look at Commodore. That's a Commodore business machine. You know, I think about that. They first started, um, would have been 1980? Yeah. 79. You've seen the Radio Shack, TRS. The Trash 80. The Tandy, the Tandems, right? And uh, was it Tandem Rand or something? That was the, the Tandem Radio Shack. Tandem Radio Shack of, the, of Dallas, Texas. TRS. 
And then um, Texas Instruments, TI-94. Yeah. And then you had the Commodore business business machines, the 8032s, the 8016s. They were all derivatives of the Altair. Yeah. And, you know, the Commodore business machine actually had a strong... Um, had a strong following, and I, I remember the um, uh, public schools, the high schools, investing, you know, being given uh, donations of equipment so that they had all of the uh, machines in the in the schools and made them publicly available to people to learn computing skills and keyboarding skills as we as we went from our IBM Selectrics into, uh, and you you look at that and. You know, it went from there, then they had Commodore, had came up with their VIC-20 and the Commodore 64, you know, the Apple, as you said, the Apple II. Um, and then what was the first little box? Macintosh, the Macintosh. The Macintosh square box. Yeah. And then that morphed into the Lisa. Yeah. And I remember, you know, any time the Mac, shut down, this little sad face would come on the screen and it would shut down and restart again. That was my, you know, I think there was a little thermometer and a sick tongue sitting there. Yeah. Um, the, you know, and, and again, I remember when Commodore came out with the Amiga, the advanced uh, something graphics, multimedia and uh, integrated graphics acceleration, right? So the Amiga was um, had the. I remember them, them showing us. And you got to think back. It was Pong. A, it was the early uh, uh, early games of Tetris or Pong or. Uh, you know, the Pong, I remember Pong. Pong. That's the seventies, like nineteen seventy six, seventy seven. Yeah, and Pong. He, Pong, the most exciting and simplest game of the time but everybody everybody had to, had to play it and and be, I, 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 there's another game that I that's still around today that was that started then and it, it's just as basic and it's not Tetris but it was uh, um, donkey something like Donkey Kong Pac-Man 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 the Pac-Man where the little guy would come across the screen and eat eat the others so when we talk about technology growth yeah. and uh, the people that are out there and listeners in the marketplace, we have tremendous, tremendous growth change, but we also have some ideas that we didn't even have then. You know, then we had ideas, and, and let's just take computing and put it outside for a second and think of the television in those days. The hot show was the Jetsons. Yeah. And the Jetsons had all the dials and whistles, but it was all fantasy. And Star Trek. And Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry starting Star Trek in those yeah. days. And many, many young boys or teens staying home after school watching Star Trek uh, before absolutely anything else. And it was a, it, it, it was a change in generation. The... Things that they talked about, beam me up, Scotty, Um, the transporter, all of the images that they had really haven't gone anywhere. They were still, they're still interesting, interesting ideas besides what we don't know what the U.S. uh, 
National Security Agency has behind the uh, the magic curtain on this because they may have these already. Right. But when you look at where we go from an office thing, I remember visiting uh, a newspaper. And the newspaper in those days had Underwood typewriters where you could see the keys and uh, they were old Underwoods that had been around for a long time and they lasted forever. Then slowly you saw computers coming into the newsroom in the 70s and 80s. But they really weren't computers, they were just terminals that were sending a copy to a, a, a computer that controlled uh, the linotype machines that printed the papers. I mean, that was like, I mean, that's where Wang had its big, um, Wang and Olivetti and those, that, they, weren't, they, were, they were typewriters, but really they were just teleterminals. That's what they used to call them back then, teleterminals, so that they still had a paper output, but they were, all the keystrokes and everything were getting sent to a linotype machine. And, you know, so it's that you were, they, the, I remember these machines that they were very, they were a hard copy terminal. Unless you were uh, in, in a smaller town where they still had uh, fellow setting linotype. Right. Uh, metal type. Now, oh, doing the, yeah, actually making the plate. Making the plate to, yeah. to, to put it into the uh, wooden holder that put it press. into the press. Yeah. And so that's not that long ago. And you now look at a newspaper. The quality of journalism really hasn't changed. It's improved, if any. The technology to deliver that journalism has changed dramatically because of time warp. <coughs> we see things in Twitter and on the CNN or uh, the CBC immediately now as yeah. a news breaking bulletin or on radio, which we did before. But news is now more commentary. News is more fleshing the story out. And the large newspapers that could handle it have stayed there. So in a business sense, you have massive change where the technology hasn't kept up with the change. So perhaps in our next episode, we should talk about the business trends that are really going to affect business this year in 2012, and maybe look at some of those trends that are new, but aren't so new. Well, for the two big telecom guys, I'm Rob. And I'm Jeff. And we look forward to seeing you same place, same time again on iTunes or wherever else you can pick us up on the web. Bye.